Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachar Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley that is just beginning to recruit trail ambassadors on the northern Oregon coast to help people engage with their public lands. We'll tell you how to get involved just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department encourages Oregonians to come out and experience the changing seasons, but also be well prepared for all the storms that spring can bring. All right. In this episode, we're talking about how Oregon is preparing to reopen some of its most beautiful places following the Labor Day fires and what the summer of 2022 has in store. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. Right, in this episode, we're talking about the latest developments in Oregon's recovery from the 2020 Labor Day fires. Now, ever since the historic infernos burned across more than 1 million acres about a year and a half ago, Oregon has been slowly rebuilding and reopening, but large areas of forests and mountains, trails and roads have remained closed. But that's beginning to change. Last month, it was announced that the Clackamas River Canyon and Highway 226 would reopen on May 1st returning some limited access for whitewater boating and fishing on that famous river outside Estacada. And in even more exciting news, Willamette National Forest just told me they're planning to reopen access to the Mount Jefferson Wilderness, possibly parts of the Opal Creek Wilderness, and other places previously closed since the summer of 2020. To break down just what that agency has in mind, I'm joined today by Willamette National Forest Supervisor Dave Warnack. He'll be leading a virtual public meeting on April 6th, one the public is encouraged to join, about all these topics, along with the agency's new plan to make forest roads safe for driving after the previous plan was blocked by a lawsuit. Dave, thanks for being here. Zach, appreciate being here. Appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. We're also joined by Elsa Gustafson and Monty Cook. Who, are, who will both be very involved in the upcoming meeting and the public outreach going forward. So thanks to both of you for being here. Thank you, Zach. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right. So our focus today is going to be on the evolving plan to reopen around 170,000 acres of forest that was burned in the Labor Day fires, primarily east of Salem and Eugene. The area includes beloved places like Opal Creek, the Detroit and Brighton Bush area, the McKenzie River Corridor, and the Mount Jefferson Wilderness. So Dave, to start off, what's the plan for this coming summer? Will all 170,000 acres that were closed last year be closed again this year? Or kind of where do we stand heading into this summer? Yeah, sure, Zach. I appreciate the question. You know, we have a lot of work planned for this summer. And, uh, you know, I agree that the places that you mentioned there, um, uh, Opal Creek, the Brighton Bush area, the Mackenzie River corridor, the, the Mount Jefferson wilderness, all of those are really special places that mean a lot to people. You know, it's been over, it's been about a year and a half since the Labor Day fires. And, uh, you know, we're very interested in restoring some safe and 
reliable access to those sections of the national forest that are currently closed uh, due to the effects of those fires. Um, I'll, I'll share with you, Zach, that I've heard so many stories over the last year and a half that people have shared with me that are deeply personal stories about these special places. And people have told me about wedding proposals, you know, baptisms, and, and just a lot of stories about self-discovery in, in, in the National Forest. And so, you know, our intent for this year is to get some of these special places open back up in, in a responsible way. Okay, so in talking about reopening some places, is there a timeline for that? And what does it actually look like? Well, I, not at this point, um, but, I, but I can say that we are doing site-specific. Um, we're asking a set of questions in site-specific areas. You know, our, our, our analysis is asking questions like, where is mitigation needed? Uh, where is it? Where where does mitigation uh, necessitate necessitate taking down fire killed or injured or injured trees along along the road system, or you know where can we simply use educational signs to to warn people of the potential risk so that they're making informed choices, right? Um, we're also looking at and asking the question um, where can the forest be opened. Um, but motorized use on the road be limited until further mitigation is completed. So what, what we're trying to achieve, Zach, is um, just a much more refined approach to, uh, to, to closed areas of the national forest and an approach that would make sense for specific areas. Okay. So, they, so hypothetically, there could be a few places that do open you know, relatively soon, uh, within the next, you know, few months, I, I'm not trying to yeah, make yeah. you pin down a date, but just trying to like get a ballpark for, right. you know, if, if, if we wanted to go like hunt for fire morels or something like that, might that be a possibility in, in some areas, you know, yeah. coming up in the short term? Yeah, I, I would say yes. And by the short term, I really mean, uh, this springtime, early summer, you know, okay. because, because those are, those are the exact questions we're working hard to answer, mm-hmm. you know, um, gathering uh, fire morels or hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, those are the types of things that are that are most concerning to us right now. Okay. And Dave, I'm just going to put this one to you kind of directly because I, you know, people are going to want to know the answers. I mean, the, the when you talk about wilderness areas, the wilderness out there is the Opal Creek wilderness, which, as you know, is is much beloved. Um, it also looks very, very burned from the pictures that I've seen from overhead planes and stuff like that. But it sounds like there might be some access into the Opal Creek because that is that is a wilderness. So will you provide some kind of way to access the Opal Creek wilderness? We're, we are actively looking at ways to access uh, the Opal Creek wilderness and you know, any remaining closures of the the Mount Jefferson wilderness. So is there going to be like, do you envision being able to get to like Jeff Park at some point this summer? I would hope so, Zach. You know, I, I, uh, I think it's important that people, people get into some of these areas so that they can see for themselves that, uh, that it is a mosaic of effects out there. You know, I think that a lot of us are carrying around this picture in our head of uh, the most, the, of the most awful, you know, scenario imaginable. And 
And once they see it, I think they'll understand that, that maybe that's, that's not the case on every acre of these burned areas. And so it is important that people are able to find their way out there so that they can, you know, share in that understanding. Okay. So you would say cautiously optimistic I, on, on Jeff Park? I am cautiously optimistic. All right. <laughs> uh, what about the, the fire morale uh, people? Um, will you look look to open up areas for them to, to get in there and forage? Yeah, it's, it's on our list of considerations, um, as well as uh, places where it may make sense to open up a route for some non-motorized uses, uh, like, yeah. like hiking or even cycling. Um, we're looking at that specifically, too. And what about the uh, the PCT? Because, um, you know, PCT season is going to be on us before we know it. Any chance that we open that stretch of the PCT through the Jeff? You're hitting all of our key considerations. <laughs> uh, yeah, that I, I would I would say also that uh, I'm cautiously optimistic about being able to do that, too. I don't know if Dave wants me to chive in here, but sure. I would add just that, um, you know, those sort of areas... Um, I'm looking at a fire severity map right now <laughs> and those sort of areas, you know, they didn't see a lot of the really high intensity burn that, um, we saw more on the beachy Creek side and near Opal Creek. So there may, you know, there may be some good opportunities there, um, because there's, there's just not as much fire damage and as many hazards, um, in that area as there are in some other parts of the forest. I mean, and that's, that's, I mean, a lot of people are going to find that to be really good news, uh, frankly. One, is Opal Creek the toughest? Like the Opal Creek wilderness? Like, I'm just guessing, having looked at the pictures and stuff, is yeah. that going to be the toughest one to restore access to, Dave? I, I believe so, Zach. I think that, you know, that that wilderness burned hot and uh, and there's not a lot of alternate access into that. And so that that's one of my one of my larger areas of concern. Well, I was just going to point out, Zach, that one of the things that, um, you know, we had such a large fire and so many, such a large, large fires that um, there are some of the trails and stuff that I don't know that we've had eyes on certain areas and stuff. So some of the big ones that you're talking about, I think can be priorities, but the, there's, there's some that we're still learning a lot out there. Okay. So you kind of envision, what would you know looking at each area and saying well this area might be good for you know biking and hiking access only you know this area might be okay for vehicle access this area probably we're going to be busy there's a lot of burn killed trees so we're going to keep this area closed like is it going to be kind of a going through those like point by point for now i think that's a good assessment of the the task in front of us yeah and so as we walk through it and we hear more from the public you know that's going to take on more clarity about the exact how that looks when it gets played out but those are some of the you know the options and things that i think we'll be looking at okay so it does sound like you guys are on a path towards some reopening but i did want to wrap up this section kind of considering why or whether the closures were necessary in the first place just because that's a question I've heard a lot, really centering on how dangerous the forest really is post wildfire. For example, you know, climbing Mount Jefferson, kayaking the Brighton Bush River, or even hiking in the forest on a super windy day, they're all dangerous, but they're sort of an inherent risk. That's what you do when you go out to public land. So I guess the question is, why not just, you know, 
reopen most of the roads, add a sign that says burned area, enter at your own risk. So, I mean, why was and in the future is like hard closures needed? Right. And so, you know, I'll remind us that that this fire or these these fires um, happened a, a year and a half ago, you know, and uh, it's taken us a little bit of time to really understand the magnitude of the impacts and uh, to understand and plan a management response to that. But I, I do consider that to be a fair question, you know, and it's frankly one that I've been considering since uh, since withdrawing that initial danger tree decision. What should people's expectations be long term? You know, to kind of get it back to where we were before, you know, with the trails and the swimming holes and all the access that, that people kind of remember uh, from this area. Do you do you see that as being five years out, 10 years out, even 20 years out? Sometimes I think about the B&B complex that, you know, hit the the Mount Jefferson back in 2003. And, you know, there's still a big legacy of, of that fire here. I'm sure it'll be the same way here. Yeah. But how, I guess how long do you feel like it takes to get those trails back, to get those access points back, to get those roads back to something that seems familiar to previous years? Yeah, Zach, I've, I've been asked that question uh, many times over the last uh, year and a half. And, you know, I, I, what we are coming to understand is that fire recovery in areas that, uh, that burned the way that these fires did and at the scale that these fires did, um, recovery is going to be long and it's going to be dif- difficult, but, it, but it's, it's certainly necessary. You know, and so we are building a, a planning horizon uh, to get a lot of the initial work done to restore a more normal uh, access across, across the forest. Um, between five and six years is what we're looking mm-hmm. at. But for, for a lot of these natural places to, to uh, you know, to do the natural recovery, it is going to take much longer than that, you know? And, yeah. and uh, I think it's something that we're all kind of having to come to grips with. Um, things right now in our society happen very quickly, uh, but rest- restoration of natural processes isn't necessarily one of those things. You know, um, there's a lot of work that, that we have to do, and there's a lot of work that, uh, that nature is, is currently doing and, and will continue to do, you know, through time. So it's long and uh, hard, but we're committed to it. All right. I think that's a good place to take a break. When we return, we'll talk about the second side of this, which centers on the controversial topic of how the Forest Service removes hazard trees along roadways and how much they end up cutting. So stay with us. I'm Travis Joseph. I grew up exploring Oregon's forests, mountains, lakes, and rivers with my family. Today, I lead the American Forest Resource Council. My love of the outdoors inspires me to advocate for better stewardship of our public lands and natural resources. At AFRC, we value protecting Oregon's forests and the benefits they provide to all, clean air and water, healthy wildlife, top-notch recreation, and renewable climate-friendly wood products. We're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. Learn more about us at amforest.org. The next message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. 
The Trail Keepers of Oregon are looking for trail ambassadors to help out on the North Coast for the 2022 season. Volunteers hang out at popular trailheads on the North Coast to engage with visitors about safety, ethical use of public lands, and leave no trace practices, as well as sharing opportunities for visitors to engage with local communities. It's a way to give back to the trails we all love. All it takes to become an ambassador is taking a virtual training that can be done on your own time and will equip you to feel confident about talking to visitors as they start their recreation adventure. To get started, email Trailkeepers Engagement Manager Natalie Ferrero at natalie.ferrero at trailkeepersoforegon.org. So once again, and I'm going to spell it, it's n-a-t-a-l-i-e dot f E-R-R-A-R-O at trailkeepersoforegon, which is all one word, dot org. All right, so you've mentioned in the past and alluded to it here that one of the things holding back a more widespread opening is the safety of the road system. So can you kind of explain why road safety is so important and such a, a linchpin in all of this? Oh, ab absolutely. You know, um, our road system uh, really does provide access uh, for so many different uses of the national forest. You know, and it's and we consider that road system to be infrastructure, and we invite you know the public to to use that infrastructure, and we we ask our employees to to travel those roads in order to complete work, right? And so um, the responsibility to provide a safe and reliable transportation system is one that I that I take really seriously, right? And uh, so that being the case. Um, you know, I think we also have a responsibility to look at it reasonably as well. And, and so I think that's what will be reflected in our environmental assessment. Okay. Well, I wanted to jump back in time just a little bit. And so the question of how to make these roads safe has been a contentious topic. Uh, last year, you released a, a plan that included cutting some hazard trees along 400 miles of forest road. At the time, you kind of called it the first step in the reopening. Uh, that plan was criticized by environmental groups for being too expansive, is what they said. They worried it opened up too much area to logging um, in a post-fire burnt forest. Uh, they filed a lawsuit against the plan, and a federal judge issued an injunction that kind of blocked you guys from moving forward at that moment. So I wanted to find out, what was your response to that ruling and the concerns raised? Were they fair? Uh, did you think that they were misplaced? Uh, you know, how'd you feel about that general situation? Yeah, sure, Zach. Um, you know, of course, I can't really discuss many of the details of that case, but I, I will share with you that anytime you end up in court, I believe that it's an opportunity to to listen and to learn and to and to really evolve and grow. And uh, that that's how I tried to. Um, that's how I tried to experience uh, 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 this this issue, and um, you know I, I think that that's reflected and will be reflected in our uh, our new approach to the environmental assessment. 
one of the, the, the main points there um, was our use of a categorical exclusion to authorize uh, that danger tree work. And so um, we're responding by, by, by doing the next, uh, the next order of environmental analysis, which is an environmental assessment to really make sure that we are providing um, ample opportunity for public involvement and that uh, that public involvement finds its way uh, into our analysis. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you pulled, uh, you withdrew the, the, the plan that, you know, ended up in court and you're starting a new. So how will this plan be different than the one that faced the legal setbacks? I mean, you mentioned, you know, not using the categorical exclusion and doing, you know, yeah. a, more, a normal environmental analysis. Is that the big difference or are there differences in the policy itself as well? That That's a good question, Zach, and, and I appreciate it. You know, um, our initial, our initial uh, project included a little over 400 miles of fire affected roads to uh, conduct, you know, danger tree mitigation around. Um, you know, we, what's different this time is, uh, we, we, it, it's looking like we will be including fewer roads in that we've, uh, our initial work has already reduced the number of roads, um, from about 400 miles to 300 miles. And, you know, we're still reviewing that and, uh, there is likely to be further reduction, um. We are very interested in that site-specific aspect of these roads and really understanding uh, questions about, you know, where does this road go? This particular road that we've identified for, for mitigation or for treatment, um, we want to know where does it go? Why is it, why do we need to treat this? You know, what, what is the, what is the net benefit to to providing this safe and reliable access? And being able to do that for, <coughs> excuse me, for each segment of road included in this proposal, we feel it's really important, you know. And and so we're we're putting a lot of work into that right now. Gotcha. I wanted to to ask about the the timeline here because that was also a concern. You know, after you guys went through the long process of. Um, you know, having the, the previous proposal and then the lawsuit came and then it was withdrawn. I think there was a concern from a lot of people that this was going to mean it was, you know, a really long extended plan and it was going to take even longer and longer. So can you talk about that timeline of of doing this this next plan and how long it'll take to get into practice and, and get going, assuming there's, you know, not a lawsuit again? Sure. Happy to answer that. Um, so you know, as we're doing an environmental assessment, there are some really important timelines and regulatory requirements that we have to go through. And a lot of those involve some really important public involvement steps and engaging with our stakeholders and interested and affected parties um, to talk with them about the proposal, see what input they have and make sure we incorporate those ideas into our considerations um, and in that decision-making process. So looking at that timeline, you know, we're initiating our scoping period actually today. Um, and we're asking for people to give us input on our proposal by about April 15th so that we can move this effort along pretty quickly. Mm. And we have our public meeting coming next week to talk about the proposal and answer any questions. And we hope that'll help people understand what we're planning to do and 
also for us to understand um, their input and their questions or concerns. Um, once we've reviewed that input, our interdisciplinary team has to go through the process of preparing an environmental assessment to look at all the project impacts and you know, make that determination if we're gonna have a significant impact on the human environment. Um, and we're hoping to have that um, available for public review sometime middle of the summer, somewhere around June. Um, and that's when it'll be available for a 30 day public comment period. Then we hope to have a draft decision on our project late this summer, and it has to go through some administrative review processes. And we're hoping to wrap that process up um, probably this fall. And we want to begin implementation as soon as we can after that. Gotcha. So, so it sounds like, you know, going through this will take, uh, you know, most of the summer to go through each of the steps. And then you want to have a final decision kind of by the end of the summer so that you could hypothetically start doing the work by, I don't know, fall and into early winter. Um, is that sound about right? Yep. You're right on track there. Okay. And I also wanted to mention, you mentioned the, the public meeting and I mentioned that in the intro, but what's the best way for people to give their opinion? Is it, is it going on the website and reading what you're proposing and then coming in with, you know, comments based on that? Um, you know, how, how, how is, can the public be most effective, I guess, at advocating for what they're looking for? Exactly that, Zach. Um, you know, so our project proposal and maps and information are all available on our project website right now. And, um, you know, providing us written comments is really the most effective way for us to hear exactly what it is people are concerned with and understand where they're coming from. Um, as part of the scoping effort, we're really trying to ask people for some specific feedback. Um, we want to know from folks, you know, what roads are important to them and why that access is so important. Um, we also want to know if there are any criteria that we should be considering um, as we're going through this process of reviewing each road segment and determining whether it needs to be treated and hazards mitigated or if we can leave it as it is for now. Um, and we also want to hear if there are effects that are really of concern to people and they want to be sure we're considering in our analysis process. So any written comments that people have, they can provide those through our project website um, and that'll help us consider that final design of the project and its effects on the forest resources. Okay, and one last, so as we kind of wrap up this part of it, would you say that the biggest differences between the initial proposal and this current one is, you know, there's a reduction in roads uh, from 400 miles to, to 300 miles. Um, and you're also doing the, the EA instead of a categorical exclusion. Would you say those are two primary differences? Are there other major differences between the two that you would want to highlight? No, I think you did pretty well. Um, I, we have looked closely at some of our more low severity fire burned areas. Um, and we've, we're walking away from a lot of that area because we expect that fire killed and injured trees there should be really sparse. And those conditions might be pretty similar to what you'd expect on any other forest road. So we're trying to focus on really two key factors this time, and that's um, both the level of need for access and also the concentration of those fire killed and injured trees where the, where the risks are much higher um, and there's a higher concentration of material that could fall 
onto the road and cause issues. Um, and I think an important difference is, you know, through our through our initial efforts last year, we heard a lot from our public that they wanted us to be very strategic and prioritize areas and identify really those high need and high priority areas that um, people want access to again. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to sit down and really look at the road system. It's a lot of roads. <laughs> it's a long list, let me tell you. Um, and looking at each one of those segments and asking that question of why is this needed or why do we need to mitigate the risks and hazards on this particular segment of road. Well, this has been a great conversation. Is there anything else you want folks to know about the hazard removal plan, um, the new plan, um, or, you know, just, just these closures? I feel like we touched on most of the important points, but anything else, you know, it, that you want people to know about? There's people are definitely antsy to get, get, to get back there, um, but any, anything else that, that sticks out? So I, I really appreciate, Zach, the time that you've uh, spent with us today and, and just being able to kind of explain our next steps and, and some of the challenges that are in front of us. Um, you know, one thing that I'd like any listeners to understand is that we, we really do look forward to, to hearing your input on this environmental assessment and our approach to, to, to understanding and, and uh, mitigating risks along our transportation system. Um, the, the public involvement process in, in this NEPA, NEPA effort is, it's important, you know, and I have no interest in making a decision in a vacuum. And so we, we look forward to, to getting um, people's input and feedback. Gotcha. All right. Well, uh, once again, I'd like to thank Dave Warnack for a supervisor for Lamont National Forest uh, for taking the time to talk with us today. And also wanted to thank Elsa Gustafson and Monty Cook uh, as well. I, I appreciate your time, guys. Thank you, Zach. Yeah, thank you, Zach. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. We mentioned earlier that they're recruiting trail ambassadors, but if you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.